Hello and welcome to That 90s Video Game Podcast, the show that takes a look back at the golden age of video games. I'm your host, Fergus, and thanks for joining me for this episode that is all about a lesser-known handheld console from the late 90s, the Tiger Gamecom. If you're not familiar with this system, I'll take you through all its features and talk about why this console was not so much of a commercial success, but has earned its place in retro video game history. I'll also give you my honest thoughts on this one, and without giving too much away, it's not going to be particularly complimentary. But don't mistake that for hatred. I really like this console, and I hope by the end of this episode, you will too. Ready? Let's get to it. There's a good chance that unless you are a total video game fanatic, you won't have ever heard of the Gamecom. And that's probably for a very good reason. It wasn't particularly good, and it wasn't particularly successful. That said, it has some unusual and interesting features and is definitely a console that is intriguing, if not always for the right reasons. But who were Tiger Electronics? Tiger are probably most famous for their basic standalone handhelds. These were less like video games and more like a beefed up pocket calculator. An LCD screen with fixed elements that lit up to give the illusion of movement. These proved to be extremely popular not least because of their low cost, but mainly due to Tiger's ability to secure popular franchises such as Sonic, Street Fighter, Duke Nukem, and many and various Disney titles and other movies. Pretty much any movie released in the 90s seemed to have one of these handhelds made specially for them. The format was typically a few buttons on each side of the screen, and the console itself was adorned with decals of the characters in the game that were more appealing to look at than playing the games themselves. And if you've played one of these handhelds, and you've figured out exactly how to win, then please let me know, because the gameplay was famously not very intuitive. But despite all this, Tiger had eyes on Nintendo and the hugely popular Game Boy. And of course, Sega and Atari, who both had decent systems during the mid-90s. And so, the Gamecom was released by Tiger Electronics in August 1997, and it featured a touchscreen, a stylus, and dual cartridge ports, were you forever swapping game carts on your Game Boy and getting tired of doing so? Fear not, the Gamecom had the solution to something that wasn't really a problem to begin with. Actually, some of these great features weren't highlighted by Tiger at all well in their marketing. Here's a quick sample from one of the ads from 1997 that was trying to encourage people to put their money behind this console. But nothing better to do than play games and surf the net all day. And it plays more games than you idiots have brain cells. Yeah, they uh, they really did that. Tiger simply tried to get this system to do too much. It could play games, yes, but it was also touted as a PDA with a special cartridge that you could use to connect to the internet and check emails. It had a calculator, a phone book, a calendar. But why? This wasn't a pocket-sized system, and the so-called PDA features feel like they were added in just because it was possible. And it's that thought that's probably the best way I can sum up this console. It had a load of great ideas, but ultimately none of them were executed particularly well. It was developed at the same time that Tiger were working on the Furby, and I'm not going to talk about that in any detail, but I think it's clear to see that there were a few competing interests and ideas at the company at the time. So what about the hardware? When you look at the system, you'll see a D-pad, 
four face buttons labeled A, B, C, and D. Sorry to X and Y for not making it into this console. There's a power button, and then there are three options buttons, menu, sound, and pause. Below the screen is a stylus. On the sides of the console, there's the contrast and volume wheels, a nine volt power port, a COM port, more on that later, plus a headphone jack. On the right hand side, there are the dual cartridge ports. It's not a terrible placement for them, but they do disrupt the ergonomics of the console a bit. It feels fairly well made overall. The D-pad is, sadly, terrible. It feels loose and it rolls, maybe they were going for a Sega Genesis feel here, and you're never entirely sure what direction you're pressing. The action buttons, though, feel good, but their placement is not the best. It's a fairly sizable unit, and there's a fair weight to the system, as it takes four AA batteries. So overall, it's solidly built, with a few annoying design flaws. But what was it actually like to use? Let's take a look at that next. Before anything else, we need to talk about the screen. It's three and a half inches with a resolution of 200 by 160. It's monochrome, it has a terrible refresh rate, and it suffered from blurring and ghosting in games. If you emulate the games for this system, that issue is not present, and some of them are much more playable as a result. But using the system itself, it's overall a bad experience. There's no backlight, so your ambient lighting is essential to get right, but the contrast style on the left-hand side of the unit ranges between pitch black and totally washed out. Now, the Game Boy itself suffered a little from some of these issues, but not to the extent that the games were unplayable. I guess it's easy to be critical of the Gamecom, but it has a worse screen than the original Game Boy, released a whole eight years earlier. And when you think that the Game Boy Color was released just under a year after the Gamecom, it was almost obsolete before it even got going. What is cool about the screen, though, is that it's a touchscreen. The console came with an integrated stylus that's proudly displayed on the front of the unit. The touchscreen itself is grid-based, with a 12 by 10 matrix. If you tilt the screen from side to side, you can faintly see the grid. And it works fairly well. And this was, I suppose, revolutionary at the time. It was the first console to really have this feature, and perhaps the best game to showcase this was Lights Out. I'll talk about games in a bit more depth later on, but it's easy to see why that particular title is fun to play on the Gamecom. There's also a built-in solitaire game on the system, and this works really nicely with the touchscreen as well. It's definitely a first try at a touchscreen system, but clearly the idea was good because this was utilised to great effect by Nintendo with the DS seven years later. Sadly, the audio is also fairly limited. The system only has four channels and there's no MIDI support, so games can't play music without getting interrupted by sound effects. And this really spoils the ambience and the feel of many of the games. Some of the games would just simply benefit from having no audio at all. Let's hear some audio from the Indy 500 game, and you'll see what I mean. Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines. The race begins from a rolling start. Ready? Go! So far, so good, but... This is it now. No music, and it doesn't really matter what you do in this game, besides crash, there's just no end to the constant droning engine noise. Better without sound, this one. Worse than the audio, though, is the processing power of the Gamecom. It's simply not good enough. Running a PDA-style operating system in the background seemingly left little power for the games, and it really shows. If you slot in a copy of Sonic Jam 
you're given a choppy frame rate and essentially an unplayable game. A poor imitation of one of Sega's flagship titles. And a lot of games are like this, but this is probably the worst one for me. So coming up, we're going to have a look at gameplay and some of the games, the 20 games that were available for the Gamecom. But before we do that, we'll dive into the internet functionality and see what that was all about. But before we do, I wanted to say thank you for listening to this episode. And let me know what you think about the Tiger Gamecom or any other thoughts by emailing me at hello at that90svgp.com. Also, if you have a couple of minutes to leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, it will be really appreciated. Okay, let's keep going. So, it's 1997 and you've got your brand new Gamecom. Plus, you've bought the internet cartridge and the 144 kilobit modem. So what's next? Well, you can check your email and surf the internet in a text-only browser. For the time, I suppose this was fairly useful, but if you've gone to the trouble of connecting the device to the modem, which itself isn't particularly portable, then the chances are you had a PC to use in any case. Plus, you needed to use the Gamecom dedicated ISP. And if it's all sounding a bit complicated and a bit pointless, then that's because it was. But that's the thing about firsts, and I talked about this in the last episode with Nintendo and the control stick on the N64. This is a bit similar. It was a sign of things to come. Whilst none of the games directly made use of the internet functionality, what was a great feature, although sadly I suspect not widely used, was the global high scores. On the main menu of the Gamecom, you could collect high scores from all of your games, and then, if you connected it to the internet, these would be uploaded to a global leaderboard. This seems very mundane now, but I think it was a fairly forward-thinking idea for the time. In 1999, Tiger released a second version of the Gamecom, the Pocket Pro. They dropped the second cartridge slot and added a backlight. The latter was much needed, but sadly, it was just too little too late for the system. The console was discontinued in 2000, having sold less than 300,000 units. All of which makes my own Gamecom that little bit more special. I suspect many have been discarded, and there's certainly no shortage of converted Gamecoms that can be seen online housing a colour screen and a Raspberry Pi. So, I'll hold on to mine and this little piece of 90s video game history. Plus, I haven't lost the stylus yet, which has to be a real bonus. And now, let's take a look at some of the games that were available for the Gamecom and see what you would have been able to play. That was the title music to Batman and Robin, which is a version of what was considered to be a fairly bad game for the PlayStation in the same year. The game is a basic side-scrolling beat-em-up, but this is an extremely repetitive basis for this game. I'd love to tell you who or what enemies you are fighting are, but they simply aren't that distinguishable. Honestly, this is probably one of the worst games I've ever played. It runs badly on the Gamecom, and with the screen ghosting, it's hard to tell exactly what is happening all the time. Sometimes, with old games and old consoles, going back to play can be a disappointing experience. Things are never as good as you remember them to be. I don't think that applies for this game. The best bit is the music, but I mentioned earlier, there's only one channel, so every time Batman throws a punch or a kick, the music is interrupted for the sound effect. I can't even score this game, so let's move on to something else. Probably the best game for the system is Lights Out. 
It's a puzzle game based on a handheld released by Tiger in 1995. Due to the format of the game, it lends itself really nicely to the use of the stylus and the touchscreen. These sort of puzzle games have an enduring appeal, but is it really a video game in the proper sense? Probably not, but it's fairly decent. So I said that Batman Robin was bad, but Jurassic Park The Lost World is equally unplayable. And I'm not entirely sure I know what I'm meant to be doing half the time in this game. There's some driving elements at the start of the game, and the truck either points straight or 45 degrees to either side, neither of which seems to change much. Then there's Monopoly. This is a game that's always painful to play in person, and usually even more so on a console. And this version is really no exception. I mentioned Sonic Jam earlier, and this is a really terrible take on Sonic's adventures, but at least you know what you're meant to be doing in this game, which helps a bit. But Tiger didn't stop trying, and they delivered one of the hottest games of the late 90s, Duke Nukem. Is it any good? No. Is it better than the other games I've just mentioned? Yes, a bit. And look, it's easy to be critical, but there's a reason this console wasn't a success. Tiger took the logic they applied to their previous handholds and tried to make it work on the Gamecom. And it just didn't. So, rather than score individual games for the Gamecom, let's put our scoring system to work for the games and the gameplay as a whole. So I'm going to give 3 for visuals, 4 for music, 2 for gameplay, and 5 for nostalgia. That's a score of 14. But there's something about the Gamecom that keeps me coming back, and I think intrigues others too. The best way I can think to describe it is to compare it to the car industry. Sometimes you see a concept car that looks great in photos, but never makes it into production, and usually with good reason. I can't help but feel if Nintendo had implemented a few of the cool ideas from the Gamecom, they would have made them work well. Dual cartridge slots felt like a really great feature at the time. So overall, this is definitely a system to add to your collection, just because it's interesting. And if you want to find out more, check out some of the many videos you can find online, particularly on YouTube, and see what the gameplay was like for yourself. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. If you haven't subscribed already, then please do, and you'll get the next episode first. A review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, would really help me out as well. Check out our website at that90svgp.com, and don't forget to send me any of your thoughts or ideas to hello at that90svgp.com. I look forward to seeing you again for the next episode of That 90s Video Game Podcast. Thanks again for joining me, and see you again soon. <laughs>